Welcome to I Just Don't Know, a podcast where we try to learn something new, challenge my opinions, and hope to make the misinformed informed. I can openly say I've spoken when I did not need to, been unnecessarily controversial, and shared my misinformed opinion, thinking it was not. I am Rob Clulo, and in this podcast, I will try to right some wrongs and take on a new topic each episode that I think are new, but in fact, I just don't know. So in my previous episode looking at the Ukraine crisis, I reflected on my chapter uh, about the Azov battalions and the the right-wing militias in Ukraine and how that might serve a threat to Ukraine's stability and how their role as the leading military might of Ukraine and the Ukraine's nationalist movement could be a threat to European collective security. And that was the approach that I took back in 2016 when I wrote that chapter and I did my research. And in this sort of episode, this uh, I wanted to reflect on that and look at how when I was going through that chapter for the first time in a long time on the eve of what turned out to be Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I wanted to record another episode so I could reflect on where I was actually wrong and where my assumptions were misguided and perhaps I did not see what was actually more obvious and uh, and so it fits in nicely into why I'm doing this podcast in the first place which is about picking out areas that I thought I knew but actually I don't know and I needed to do a bit more research, I needed to reflect on it more, I needed to give it a bit more time and I needed to look at things from another angle or I needed to give someone else another chance. So in this case, I made that assumption that Ukraine was was a weak democracy. It was not necessarily going to be a strong democratic country in Eastern Europe, always un, a neighbour of Russia and under the Russian influence like it had been from the early 90s till 2014. And at the time of 2016... The rise of the Azov Battalion as the leading military leader against the Russians in the Donbass region, and them gaining political, a political, uh, a political foothold, was a dangerous sign that this right-wing nationalist movement was growing in Eastern Europe, and the and the anti-EU rhetoric was growing in the likes of Poland. Um, Brexit had just happened, which had similar connotations with some far right extremists in the in in Britain hijacking that not necessarily they were behind it but they definitely hijacked the cause and so nationalism has been a danger to Europe since its arrival about 120 years ago so that's why i perhaps saw it as a, as an issue these they managed to get a seat in parliament the the uh, this sort of right wing um party in in ukraine and there was there was concern there, um, but what I didn't realise is that between 2016 and now is that Ukraine have managed to really handle this rise in nationalism, really guide it in the right direction, and not perfectly, but they've managed to keep the right wing militias and the right wing ideals at bay, measured, and not let it spread in a way that is uncontrollable. And as a result, the I believe the the person who, who was a leader of the Azov Battalion, who then moved into politics, lost his seat in 2019 when President Zelensky came in. 
and the the far right sort of any ideas of 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 that was definitely not in the mainstream and a lot of ukrainians most ukrainians would strongly disagree with those ideals so it went definitely did not go the way that i thought i was very very wrong in how that could have resulted resulted as a threat to europe and what was clear that they've managed to take the the good parts of this of that movement against Russia in 2014, which was the rise in nationalism, that rise in Ukrainian pride, uh, pride, and that pride to become Europe's youngest democracy and become a new beacon of hope and democracy on the Russian border, and to try and replicate what perhaps was achieved in in some of the, the Baltic states in some ways. So nationalism has grown so strong in Ukraine and that's where I was wrong it was that's not a threat to Europe that actually has turned out to be a massive massive thing in the defense of Ukraine as we all know and I'll come on to that later but overall the threats of the militias the the right-wing militias in Ukraine were not a threat to Europe and what I didn't realize again another area where I perhaps made an assumption or my approach was wrong in back in 2016, which is that there was also a threat to Russia, these militias. And if not, if guided in the wrong way, they could continue to be a threat of Russia, but also if guided in, guided in a way where they actually undermine Ukraine, they can actually be a weak, they could actually be a strength to Russia, keeping Ukraine broken, not really knowing what they had to do, the polit- political system disrupted by these extremists that or these extreme views that if they did even exist in the mainstream at all which they which they which we've learned over the years now Ukraine has managed as i just said so i was very much wrong but what was even wrong uh, even worse was that when i was writing that and with all my research and talking to lecturers and people to try and give me hints and ideas of how to approach this chapter, was that Russia was completely ignored as a threat, seen and seen as a threat to Europe. It was just seen as a compliant, defeated, former foe. And while it is on the agenda for NATO and the traditional alliances that we'll look at again as well, it was like, well, they're there, but we've beaten them. We beat them in the 90s. There's nothing too much to worry about. So that was where I was wrong. I didn't realise that actually one of the biggest threats to European security was is still Russia. A quote from a great book uh, by Richard Harris, the, the sort of fake fictional, historical fictional novelist. You might have, he's done some great films, like uh, great books like Fatherland and Munich. And uh, an officer and a spy. Great books, really detailed. And I'm currently reading Archangel, which looks at the they're in the former Soviet Union in the 90s. An American professor, British American professor, gets caught up about trying to find Stalin's old black leather notebook. And there's an absolutely fantastic quote that I want to read, which really highlights how perhaps we've misunderstood Russia in the last. 30 years and how why I misunderstood Russia 
back when I wrote my dissertation. So this quote from Archangel, written by Richard Harris, it's, if I set the scene, so the main character, Kelso, is in a club in Russia and he's talking to an American journalist, and this journalist is trying to get some information out of him. Um, the main character, Kelso, is like a, a lecturer, a professor. He's written a book about in the story about the fall of Russia. And this American journalist starts just looking at the room and he just says he says how it's, it is the Weimar Republic. Um, and so he goes... He say he shouts into Kelso's ear. It's the Velma's Republic. That's how I see it. Like you see it. Six things the same, okay? One, you have the big country, proud country, lost its empire, really lost the war, but can't figure out how. Figures it must have been stabbed in the back. So there's a lot of resentment, right? Two, democracy in a country with no tradition of democracy. Russia doesn't know democracy from a effing hole in the ground. Frankly, people don't like it. Sick of all the arguing, they want a strong line, any line. Three, border trouble. Lots of your own ethnic nationals suddenly stuck in other countries, saying they're getting picked on. Four, anti-Semitism. You can buy SS SS marching songs on the street corners, for goodness sake. That leaves two. All right, it's disconcerting hearing your own views so cruelly parrotters like an Oxford tutorial. That's a, the interior monologue of Kelso. Economic crash. And that's coming, don't you think? And it's obvious, Hitler. They haven't found their Hitler yet. But when they do, it's watch out, world. I reckon O'Brien put his left forefinger under his nose and raised his right arm in a Nazi salute. So, who did they find? Well, Archangel was written in the late 90s, just before or around the time Putin came to power as the, as his as president. He was still he was on the scene in the 90s as the head of the FSB. But wow, <laughs> when I read that it was a bit like, oh, okay. We're not joking because Putin has been in power since the 90s. He's had two decades of just dominance. And he was the sixth mark there, leading Russia to uh, in a direction that you just do not want to see. And obviously, it's not exactly the same, but it's very eloquently put by Richard Harris there. And then the second quote is a they're in a lecture and someone is talking to um, all these different professors, and he and he regards this as well. He says, "All right, I should draw them to a conclusion." With this observation, that there can be now no doubt that it is Stalin rather than Hitler who is the most alarming figure of the 20th century. I say this. I say this not merely because Stalin killed more people than Hitler, although clearly he did, and not even because Stalin was more of a psychopath than Hitler, although clearly he was. I say it because Stalin, unlike Hitler, has not yet been exercised, and also because Stalin was not a one-off like Hitler, an eruption from nowhere. Stalin stands in a historical tradition of rule by terror, which existed before him, which he refined, and which he could exist again. His, not Hitler's, is the spectre that should worry us. Because you know, you think about it, you hail the taxi of Munich, you don't find the driver displaying Hitler's portrait in his cab, do you? Hitler's birthplace isn't a shrine. Hitler's grave isn't piled with fresh flowers every day. 
and there's a little bit in the book that talks about how supposedly in the 90s one sixth of Russia thought Stalin was the greatest leader they've ever had well and he jokes that if one sixth of Germans thought Hitler was the greatest leader they've ever had in the 90s then that would be on the front page of the newspaper and that would be worrying so I think it's a really interesting few quotes there that highlight how perhaps in the last 20 years and in my lifetime and perhaps in, in some way the last 30 years our understanding of Russia has almost been complacent that they are no longer what they are. I think their defeat and their sort of influx of money from the exter- from the outside and the money being exploited by these oligarchs has led to us misunderstanding what Russia really is. And we're going to struggle again now to understand it because we don't have the access. And I think it's important that we reflect on where we went wrong. And in terms of myself, I definitely went wrong in not highlighting it. I think it definitely deserved a chapter, if not more, in my dissertation back in 2016. And uh, in the events of the last month, we definitely need to reassess how we view Russia and how we can help them to become less like what I just described and quoted and push them more in the direction of a more peaceful nation. So the next part I want to look at in terms of this this war, this war of ours in, in Ukraine, I think this war is a representation of, of principles and, and ideals that many, many people share across many continents, I think in Asia, South America, they America and Europe, they all share the, some of these principles that Ukraine does represent in terms of peace and looking after each other and, and respecting people's boundaries. We cannot have the repeat of what we've had in the past of, of, of aggression is success and aggression is how you expand your your markets, your wealth, your borders. It's just not the way how the world should work, at least in a physical, military way. I know it happens financially, but that cannot, it cannot, that is a, di- a very different thing to physical violence. Um, that is the way to, to progress and to be seen as a great leader. That cannot be the ideal. And so the positives I think we can take from this month of of devastating and tragic fighting, and I want to start off on a, on my on sort of a military focus here, taking some advice from from some BBC news and and podcasts and some uh, with sort of generals across the US and and Europe. Is that the big thing that hopefully many people have seen, and though for those people listening in different countries around the world. Hopefully you have seen that the success of the handheld missile launchers, um, anti-tank weapons, have meant that the Russian tanks and the Russian military and combat vehicles have been largely unsuccessful in executing their plans and strategies the way they want to be. And they're nowhere near as effective as they could be or have been in previous conflicts, such as in the Middle East, um, things like Desert Storm and and uh, other areas where 
tanks and, and military vehicles have have largely been vital to their success and the protection of of of, of combat um, troops. What has shown is that these all the influx of this of these weaponries from the help from NATO, US, the British, it means that the tanks cannot. They have to go on the roads because of the bad weather and the mud, and they're left stuck on the roads as sitting sitting ducks and being destroyed at crazy crazy levels and the and the the number of wounded and dead is is numbers that are pretty shocking because if if let's say it is true that the russians have lost around 15,000 troops which is terrible and many of them will be very young i think regardless of what side you're in they should not be dying no one should be dying that young is that in the nine years or eight, nine years that the Russians had invaded Afghanistan, they lost around 15,000. So that says a lot about the impact that the Ukrainian forces are. But the positive side of all of this is showing that traditional warfare has changed again. Traditional combat has changed. Tanks are not what they were in the 20th century, where they won the World War One. They were vital to the success of the Russians in World War Two and the Germans in their blitzkrieg campaigns into France, Belgium, the Netherlands in, in the early parts of World War II as well. Speed, mechanisation of troops, getting them to the battlefield quickly, effectively, well fueled, well stocked up, logistics, supply chains that move rapidly. That is the most important thing to success in military operations in the 20th century, and they still are now. But what has proven here is that with the advancing technology of missile launchers, handheld missile launchers, tracking, and the accuracy of them, it's a long, we've come a long way from those bazookas that the US used to use, the airborne used to bring on, on the in terms of D-Day and etc. We've come a long, long way from that. And it means that tanks, well, how effective they are, People are questioning them. And that sends a signal to those that have got a stockpile of tanks, and the North Koreans, the nations in, in the Middle East and Africa. It shows that perhaps they're not as effective as they could be in the hypothetical potential conflict that they imagine or plan for. So it's made them stop and realise that traditional combat needs to be reassessed. And it goes in a good way for the direction of defence. And ultimately, we want everyone to have their borders defended and not impeded on by any aggressor. So overall, it sends a message to all the other dictators around the world. And if they, hopefully, this message reaches them as well, that do not be an aggressor. Do not think you can just walk in and take people's land with force because whether you're on foot or in a tank, you're nothing against the technology that is available now. And that is a good thing, because I do not think any of the peaceful democracies in this country will forcefully invade, invade a country as an aggressor. I do not think any democracy will, be, will allow it. So therefore, this is not going to be a problem for the, for the US or Britain or Britain or France, it's going to be a problem for the aggressors and the dictators that still exist in the world today. So the next positive that I want to touch on is that nationalism in Ukraine has been the fire in its belly. It has been a huge 
boost to the morale and has been vital to how President Zelensky has brought together the nation and appealed for help across all the different parliaments, from Japan to Italy, to Congress, to the House of Commons in the UK, as the first international leader to address the House of Commons. That's quite a big deal considering things. But and he's had he's been the most successful politician in the last month. He's got he has so much appeal. He, everyone knows who he is. He's appealing, and he's, he is there is an air of desperation. But understandably, you would expect that. And he has gone from losing a bit of popularity, supposedly before the war, to becoming one of the greatest leaders of Europe and vital, vital to Ukraine's success. And he's used the nationalism, the nationalist pride of Ukraine to bring the people together and seeing these people fight the volunteers the efforts in in moving the refugees out the fighting itself that is being portrayed sometimes on the internet but largely it's very difficult to portray and we'll touch on that later nationalism has been able to keep the the country together in a time where all the odds were stacked against them and it seemed that they had no chance in winning when the Russians started rolling their tanks in. But nationalism is not always regarded as a positive thing. I think in the last 20 years or so, nationalism has always been associated with the right wing or even extremists on the right wing. And I think looking back in the UK, the, the one time it sort of played a part was in the Brexit vote and people being proud British people, they do not want to be told what to do from Brussels. But that wasn't a very good argument. It didn't really break down any of the details. And it was just boycotted, well, sort of hijacked, sorry, by the wrong people. So I wouldn't say it was used in a necessarily effective way. But it did sway a lot of people because it's a powerful feeling, nationalism. Also, nationalism is always associated with areas of, of, of sort of anti-immigration, anti-share cooperation, where you're not going to help necessarily others because you've got to worry about your own country and borders. And does, did nationalism help in the COVID response? Well, I don't think so. I think the British, in terms of the British, the NHS was what everyone got behind in that difficult year in 2020. Nationalism played as perhaps it's a very small part, but it was the NHS that the political marketing guys nailed it and got us to to fall behind and fight for and stay indoors for. It was we didn't stay indoors for being British because the French and the Germans and that weren't doing it. Maybe in New Zealand, where they called for people to follow the laws very strictly and not travel and not leave the country and respect that they needed to have a zero COVID policy perhaps Australia as well, but then that was definitely got out of hand. I, I feel in this country, in the Britain, we didn't do anything necessarily for, for nationalist pride as such. It perhaps played a little part in May 2020 when we had the Queen's Jubilee and it allowed people to celebrate in the gardens and see people a little bit more. But that was a nice respite. A nice respite against the difficult time. So nationalism ha- hasn't really had a good time in the last 10, 20 years. I think the last time it played a big part and in a positive way and brought people together was unfortunately after 9-11. It's well known the US for, for, for a period after 
everyone was incredibly proud to be American. And as they went and on the hunt for Bin Laden and eventually invaded, and they invaded Afghanistan and then later invaded Iraq, and the British went along with it in order to, in the defense of, of our people and defense of against terrorists, there was an element of pride. British pride, pride of democracy against these people that would try to tear down capitalism and democracy and tear down America and burn the American flag. So there was definitely definitely nationalism there, but because of the results of those wars, as we all know, they were in some ways disastrous and a tragedy and not successful wholeheartedly. They were not, there were definitely errors, errors there, and that's one for another Another discussion, nationalism has then been associated with those failures and as a result had a bad time, as I said. So a positive we can take out of this this last month of what's happened in Ukraine and seeing now the news where Ukraine is starting to supposedly counterattack even, nationalism have brought together that country to become a, one of the most strongly united countries in Europe right now. It has brought together the nations, their neighbours, the Slovakias, the, the Polands, the Estonias, the, the Moldova, the Hungaries, the, the, the Czech Republics. It has brought them together and allowed them to see, well, if this was happening to us, what would we do? And understandably, they should be scared. And seeing the, the marches in London and, and Mexico City and, and Paris and seeing people do these, get behind the Ukraine cause with the Ukrainian flags and that is nationalism to a level where you've got other countries fighting for your cause and that is a great thing to see because it shows that the pride of nations against military aggression and violence is still very very strong it's what drove a lot of people to do a lot of different uh, crazy things in the first half of the 20th century and nationalism that perhaps we associated with football hooligans and football and chanting and singing that was just that's not nationalism we've met, we've our definition of nationalism has been skewed it's become a bit opaque over the last 10 15 years in reality it's a traditional setup still exists and that's a positive because it shows that Ukraine can fall back into it and use it when it says that other countries can use it as well. And it goes back to my first message. Do not pick on a country because nationalism will bring them together and they will fight. And they will fight hard. Another message that we can take from it is that Europe is not quite as fragmented as you thought. With the Germans sort of losing their grip on the EU after Brexit and their eastern states sort of questioning their participation in the Nordic states, setting up their own deals. Trade-wise, it was controversial. Uh, it was a difficult time, and, a con- and it was a little bit controversial, some of the political views, Italy as well. And there was an argument that NATO had lost its effectiveness and wasn't really doing anything. But actually what... This has shown that the defensive alliance of NATO, and let me highlight that defensive alliance, is clear that it is fulfilling its purpose as a defensive alliance and backing up everyone who is a participant and saying very clearly if anything happens to them, they will defend them. And I and 
they're coming across as fairly believable. I think believable enough for Putin not to push his boundaries yet. Whether he does when he whether he does it or not, I think every day that goes past, the chances of him to do that is less. But there was definitely an argument. I remember back in 2016 that people saw NATO as a weak, misguided, old alliance that didn't really didn't really matter. The US were acted in their own way. The British acted in their own way in Libya. The French and did their own thing in Africa as well. They don't need they don't need NATO. But actually what I think a positive you can take out of this conflict is that the old alliances matter. And you can reflect back to the old alliances that between the French and the Russians in the nineteen in the early twentieth century, which brought them into the war in World War One, and then you can look at even the the old alliances between the French and the Scots, which keep them going working against the British and the English, sorry, the English, um, that kept that conflict going and they relied on each other to keep, to support each other when one was weak. Old alliances are important, like old friends. You might not, you might not need them and you might question your relationship with them as you drift apart, but when you need them, you, these, those relationships are strong because they've gone for a, they've been going for a while and what it's clear here is that these smaller nations around the world they're looking now going well I need to join an old alliance I need to join a bigger something bigger than me because it's so important to do that trying to go your own in in this world in a military sense I think is very very dangerous and tricky path to take so it's a positive that actually some of these collective Groups have shown that they are worth doing, and that's great. And now the last area that a real positive, last few positive, is looking at the cyber world, the online world. And the biggest one is social media. Social media has been to and fro battle. It's been a key part of the culture war that we've had, the culture divide of the last 15 years as we've become more and more partisan, right wing versus left wing, woke versus traditionalists social media has played a huge part in this um we've never really had social media in a conflict like this it has definitely played a part somewhat in the in in the later parts of the afghan war and in sort of eastern africa and and some other sort of conflicts as well we can see right on the ground as it happens these terrible tragedies but for the ukraine war again the russian invasion it is so overwhelming the social media and the use of social media not by not only by the ukrainian political um what well, the political uh team and and the leaders um but by, by all the journalists by the locals by anyone that has a phone can spread the images and the videos of this war to such a degree to such a sheer quantity and different perspectives that the traditional propaganda that could be used internationally by the Russians is just so ineffective. It's even struggling from what I'm aware and what, you, what people have seen and people are arguing, it's failing in Russia as well. Despite limited access to, to sources, there is such an overwhelming amount of social media presence of what is happening 
clear videos that cannot be very easily faked are showing what is happening and therefore it is it is difficult to it's actually so overwhelming that the fake agenda uh, well any of the fake news or the fake videos um, or the deep fakes are being so diluted that social media is becoming a force of good it's become a force to unite and as the Russians can't use their phones and in in Ukraine and they've blocked off all the 3G access and they're having to rely on Ukrainian phones and Ukrainian um, wire networks to communicate they are then having access and a view of what we're seeing and it's causing causing difficulties for the Russians and quite rightly quite rightly so and linked to this in the last last point to finish on is that when back in 2016 one area that I there was an assumption across the board I remember uh, that I had to write an essay on actually in fact was about something called hybrid warfare I'm not going to go into exactly what people have defined it as it's changed a lot over the years hybrid warfare has been gone from guerrilla warfare versus traditional warfare a mixture of both if we look go all the way back to the the war of independence for the for america hybrid warfare can be seen as, as sort of guerrilla warfare versus the sort of civilian warfare in, in cities if we look at afghanistan and um, we look at vietnam but hybrid warfare in the in time of 2016 when i was looking at it people were arguing well what does it look like online you have a military might you have a tank march going down the street but what have you done to get that tank into that city have you brought down the internet network have you brought down the the water network have you brought down the television and communication network through cyber through cyber hacking and crimes and infiltration to allow that physical military power to walk straight and have their advantage against your enemy and so hybrid warfare was effectively that sort of the hacking side of things and we know uh, people have argued there's a cyber war going on and people attacking russian infrastructure and the russians attacking infrastructure in eastern europe but there was a big argument what does that look like in the early in 2011 i believe the russians trialed it and attacked the estonian um, government websites and things like that and it brought it down for a few few days or something like that they definitely they did the same to the ukrainian Ukrainians in 2014 but what is clear is that it's not quite as disruptive as argued the London isn't losing its internet every few days Ukrainians are still able to use 3G and communicate largely in their own country bank transfers and, and online sales and, and and all everything that is happening online is still being is still largely undisrupted across the US and Europe and social media is still accessible and we're still able to use our smartphones and access all the news and everything that we need overall the digital world has not changed for many people and is actually proving to still be an advantage for the Ukrainians so actually hybrid warfare this hybrid, hybrid cyber crime warfare is not quite as in your face as people feared I could be wrong, and I'll happily correct myself in the future, but it's not as bad as possibly what it could have been. And that, I think, is a positive. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode where I've reflected on some of the assumptions that I made back in 2016 when writing about Ukraine and um, some of the assumptions and thoughts I had on the eve of the Russian invasion just over a month ago. I tried to stay positive in this episode, looking at some of the things we can take away from the last month and the news and that was coming out of Ukraine. And I hope if I do record another episode on this topic, it is all about victory and even more positives that we can take out of this unfortunate tragedy and difficult time for many people that I think we can all share and get behind. 